Good morning, church family. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we're digging into the Sermon on the Mount, looking at these wonderful Beatitudes, the Lord Jesus. And as you're turning to Matthew 5, let me just um, remind you of something you already know. One of the great challenges we face as God's people living in a sin-stained world as we do is to believe that the gospel really is the answer to the greatest needs that are facing people today. The gospel is not somehow disassociated from the great needs in the world today. Although uh, our neighbors and our co-workers and others who maybe who are apart from Christ will tell us that. You Christians are always talking about your gospel and your Jesus, but you know, we're we're dealing with reality here. Of all of the beatitudes, the one we turn to this morning makes a loud declaration that the gospel of Jesus Christ could not be more relative to what is happening around you in the world today. The great need of people made in God's image is to be made right with God. Are you right with God? And the great need of people made in God's image is to be then made right by God, to be set straight by God. We're, we're born in sin. We're born crooked in that sense. And Jesus has come in power to straighten what is crooked. And the great need of people made in God's image is to live in hope. The hope that belongs to those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We're going to be cautioned this morning and also encouraged, I trust, uh, that to be a Christian is to belong to a kingdom of righteousness. This is not a world of ideas alone, but a world of practical living a world of influence of God through you into the lives of people around you, the kingdom of heaven. Salvation is the realm in which people are made right with God and being made right by God. And collectively, we who are citizens of the kingdom bring righteousness then into our relationships into our community, into God's world. Now, that's a bit of a wind-up, I know. But I want us to get a sense for the magnitude that Jesus conveys to his own when he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 5. Seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hunger and thirst. You know, we, we don't... Um, relate to hunger and thirst the way Jesus' first listeners related to hunger and thirst. I was thinking about this uh, Friday uh, when I I went on a quick uh, backpacking trip with my son and two of his kids, little ones, and our idea of of, of explaining to the kids that they would maybe be hungry, more hungry than they were when we camp out of the back of a pickup, um, you know, look, you're only going to have like five treats to choose from, not, not the normal 25, right, that you bring from your home out into the woods. And I, be, and I was just thinking about this as we were explaining this to the kids. Like, how far removed are we in our culture uh, from those in Jesus' day who lived in uh, that boundary between hunger and starvation? being utterly preoccupied with, will we have food for this day? Will my children eat this day? As I see them in terms of their health, looking as if maybe if we had more food, they would be healthier. Jesus' first listeners knew all about hunger, and they knew all about uh, the thirst that is not just, boy, I need, to, I need another cup of coffee, I need another bottle of water, but thirst in the sense that daily activity is planned around where the next water source would be. And so when we think of hunger and thirst, we have to kind of transport ourselves and our thinking to what Jesus' first listeners thought of when they heard that. Some of them were hungry as they heard this. And they understood that Jesus was speaking of an intense craving or desire, uh, a, a preoccupation, if you will, an intense um, uh, desire at the very core of a person for righteousness. Let me ask you something. What do you crave? What what do you desire? Blessed are those who crave God. Blessed are those who are desperate for his righteousness. Cannot live without his righteousness. Is that you? We live in a world of disordered desires, don't we? Disordered cravings. By nature, people made in God's image to be satisfied in Him search for satisfaction elsewhere. 
In fact, search for satisfaction everywhere else, it seems, but God. And it isn't just those guys out there. It's us guys in here. That's the trouble with these Beatitudes. They get all up in your business. They're meant to. I mean, if, if, you, if you're studying this and you're thinking, boy, I hope Henry's listening to this, man. I mean, you're, 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 you're missing the point. You're missing the point. What do you desire? What do you crave? A lot of people crave money. Money is good. Money is necessary. A gift from the Lord, a tool to be used for his good purposes, but how many of you know chasing money as a primary satisfaction in life, even worrying about money in that way, is a miserable idolatry. It's very possible someone in this room right now has learned that or is yet learning that. Some people crave experiences. They're always bouncing from from this hobby and, and that pastime, this place over here, this feeling, trying to find the sweet spot, trying to find that thing that's going to give satisfaction, satisfaction of soul. Some people hunger and thirst to be esteemed by others. Not just the famous who struggle with this. Although we do tend to worship people in our culture, don't we? And they learn that it's exhausting, really, to be in the business of people-pleasing. So much the better to live for God's pleasure. To, To live in the security of knowing that you're accepted by him on his terms. But anyway, how disordered are people's desires today? And again, it's not just those guys. It's us guys. And disordered desire is the the dark backdrop against which the the bright diamond of Christian character is is set. The, The world is black in that sense, all disordered. But then there is this kingdom of heaven, the blessed people of the king who are being polished up by God's grace. And they're quite a contrast, these people are, to the world around them. Remember, each one of these beatitudes is like a facet in the the diamond that is Christ-like character. The beatitudes describe for us what our king is like and who he's making us to be. And by now, we've noticed a progression in this description of God's blessed people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says verse 3. The the elect of God are are convinced of their spiritual poverty before God. I have nothing to bring to him to commend myself to God. In fact, anything good in me has come from God. God. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, God's people are convicted of their sinfulness before God. So you're meant to ask yourself, 
Am I so convinced of my absolute lack before God? Am I convicted of my sinfulness before God? So much so that I will simply run to his remedy for my poor state. Because I'm hungry to be right with God. I'm desperate to know that he and I are on good terms. Well, then be encouraged, says the king. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, what is this righteousness that God's people are so hungry for? I'm going to mention just three aspects of it. There are probably more. Um, but three that we'll deal with today and then we'll turn to the scriptures to see that they are so. Uh, first, the, the one that we're probably most familiar with, uh, we sang most about just now, is positional righteousness. In other words, judicial righteousness. Uh, my, my legal standing before God, if you will. In uh, Acts 17, we're told this. Paul or excuse me, Luke says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's King Jesus. So that gets you thinking about, in light of this certain day, when I will be judged not by my own measure of myself, Not by everybody else's measure of myself, but with God's own measure of me. And the yardstick is his, his righteousness. How will I fare? Because that day is coming, the scripture says. We want to be found right with God. That's positional righteousness. And then there is personal righteousness. In other words, we want to be made right by God. I don't want to just hear about righteousness at church and then go home. Oh, I want to be a righteous person. And I'm, and I'm not yet. That work has begun in me. But, but I'm tired of being that guy that runs to sin, that runs away from God, that, that seeks satisfaction and things and stuff and circumstances. Is that you? Do, do you hunger for righteousness in that sense. So Jesus speaks of positional righteousness and also personal or practical righteousness. And then, and, and the thing of it is, is I needed another word that starts with P. And so um, I'm going to call it public righteousness, okay? But here, here's what I mean. I just mean the world around us. Turns out God's people care that the world around us isn't right with God. That actually bothers us. We don't like to see suffering because people live in rebellion against God. We don't like to see injustice in the world around us. We don't like to see rebellion in the world around us. And we're not just sort of isolated apart from it. We're we're in the world, as Jesus will say in this very sermon, like salt is in a substance to flavor it. Do you hunger 
for God to be glorified in his world? Is that your desire? I wonder this morning, what do you desire? Are your desires ordered or disordered? And you say, well, listen, I do pursue happiness. I'm a religious person. Of course I'm, I'm looking for this blessedness. That's, that's why I'm working so hard for it, you see. That's why I'm trying all of this stuff, searching for it. And we need to be reminded at this stage in our time in the Beatitudes that happiness or blessedness is never the goal that God's people aim at. It's a byproduct. It's a fruit, if you will, of aiming at the right thing. Or if you will, the right person. Pursue the king. Pursue Christ. Because in Christ, this blessedness is found. In Christ, this happiness of soul is found. Jesus will say later in this very Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. The satisfaction you long for is found in the king and his kingdom. The life that is lived out as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Blessedness is the fruit of knowing him, belonging to him, living for him. You still listening? So the whole worldly notion, and you've heard this, you have a friend who has said this, God wants me to be happy. That's why I'm thinking this way. That's why I'm doing this thing. Listen, if you have that written down someplace, if you've got a poster that says that, take it down. Put a line through it at least. Because you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible where God says he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And he's remaking you in Christ to be holy. And he loves you so much that that is the atmosphere in which your happiness is found. That, that, that is the atmosphere in which blessedness is experienced by the people of God. And you say, well, that's not my understanding of the gospel at all. Well, let me love you enough to tell you you're wrong about the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it so well. He says, whenever you put happiness before righteousness, you will be doomed to misery. That is the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. Now, I got to thinking about that. That sounds like hyperbole, doesn't it? Is that really the message of the gospel from beginning to end? We should just check that out, shouldn't we? We have time because the people in the first service said, hey, did you end early or something? How come there was a whole bunch of parking? So we'll just use that time. No. Uh, Listen, let's let's just think about what he's saying, okay? The Bible from cover to cover reinforces the notion that when we put happiness before righteousness, we're doomed to misery. Well, what happened in the book of beginnings, Genesis, with Adam and Eve? They enjoyed perfect friendship with God, perfect fellowship with God. 
They only knew blessedness. They only knew happiness. They were created in righteousness to be God's image bearers. Perfect reflectors in that sense of his righteousness. But what happened? Well, their their sin, their rebellion, their chasing after happiness destroyed both friendship and fellowship with God. And, and, and this is true for you, and this is true for me. Please, please don't leave here today without understanding that your disobedience to God, the sin you were born into, the sin that you practice by nature, apart from grace, um, will never set you on your way to rightness with God. You'll you'll never find happiness in that way, blessedness. And you experience that even from time to time because God loves you. And whatever hell you sense in this life now, misery, as Lloyd-Jones says, is but a shadow of the eternity that awaits you in the presence of God's wrath. What did Adam and Eve do? Well, they, they hid in shame from God. They knew they were unrighteous. They couldn't be in God's friendly presence anymore, enjoy fellowship with God anymore. And you know, people today still try to hide the shame of their unrighteousness. Isn't it, isn't it curious that, that, that a lot of the crummy stuff in this world happens at night? Why is that? Better hours for wicked people? No, I mean, there's just something about the cover of, the cover of darkness. We even use that term. It's to do with shame. Shameful stuff often happens at night. But you know... Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, doesn't it? Because if it happens at night and it happens in that other place, it's hiding. It's hiding. And people don't hide behind fig leaves anymore. They hide behind things like denial or indifference. People will even hide behind their own imagined righteousness, self-righteousness, religion, Rules, rituals, all of that sort of thing. That was the deal with the the scribes and Pharisees, wasn't it? And so Jesus will say to this multitude on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a big statement. But in part, Jesus is telling people, look, a pretended righteousness, a going through the motions righteousness, isn't going to cut it. That'll never do. God will not be mocked. And how serious is this? Well, serious enough that God commissioned angel warriors, cherubim, to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Isn't that interesting? There's a gate now, a barrier, separating Adam and Eve 
from the fellowship with God that they had once enjoyed. Sin closes a gate that separates people from God. And we wonder, well, how, how, how will this gate ever be opened up? What a promise this is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew will tell us in his gospel toward the end that our king and savior, after living out the very righteousness of God in humanity, went to Calvary's cross, and the wrath of God was intensely focused upon him, diluted none whatsoever, so that he would pay the penalty your sin deserves, so that he would take upon himself the wrath that my unrighteousness deserves. And then his body was placed in that tomb, and he rose again in the power of an everlasting life so that he could impart righteousness and life to his people. This is our Jesus. And when Jesus died, the scripture says, the veil of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two. How interesting. That heavy, tall curtain adorned with what? Cherubim. Teared in two, rent in two by God himself. Not by man, by God, for man. And that curtain separated the holy of holies from the, from the rest of the temple. It, it symbolized this, this separateness between God and man. That barrier has been broken down through the work of Christ. And, and, and this has always been the great expectation of God's people throughout history. Listen to Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Christ, the King, is the gate you and I must go through as those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. And Christ alone is the gateway to righteousness by God's measure. That's what Jesus means when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a wonder this is, that God looks upon the repentant sinner, hungry and thirsty to be right with God, depending wholly upon the work of Christ alone, and sees what? The perfection of Jesus, credited to that set, credited to you who trust in Christ. Jesus said this in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Never will you lack righteousness when you have the righteousness of Christ credited to you. And the enemy comes to you and says, you know what? You call yourself a Christian, but what about this and that and the other thing? And that's just the stuff you're thinking about right now. What about all the stuff you can't remember? What about the stuff others know about you that you're hiding from them? What about all that stuff? Ah, I have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has 
credited to me his righteousness. So what's the point? To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to trust in Christ alone for the righteousness God requires. And I mentioned at the onset, listen, I mentioned at the onset, this is, this is the part of righteousness, this positional or judicial righteousness that we're probably most familiar with. You, you should see your faces right now, those of you who are awake. You're, you're thinking, I, I thought I would hear this. Well, I hope you never come here on a Sunday thinking you won't hear the gospel. But listen, what a gift this is from God. Have you received it? It's not enough to have heard it. Have you, have you repented of your sin and run to Christ? Paul says to the Corinthians, but of God, you, believers, are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption thus that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord that's the vibe of a believer's life glorying in the one who makes me right with God let me ask you something this morning is Christ your righteousness do you, like, do you delight at the thought of standing before God in judgment one day because you know him to be Jehovah, to gain you the Lord, my righteousness? I'm secure in Christ. Now, I mentioned earlier, and nobody disagreed, I mentioned earlier that that's one aspect of the righteousness Jesus is talking about. He's also talking about personal righteousness. Listen, imputed righteousness that comes to us by faith in Christ always brings about an imparted righteousness. There's no such thing as a Christian who isn't being made more like Christ. God's people are being made righteous in reality. This is a, this is a realized righteousness. It's not simply an idea to think about. We're enabled to think and live in the right way before God and in our relationships with other people and this is a work in progress, amen? We're not, anybody here get zapped with holiness and you're just done? Of course not. I mean, man. Um, he's chipping off all the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus and it hurts and it's messy. And there's more than you thought. But he loves you. And he's relentless in doing this work. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let me ask you, do you, do you hunger for practical righteousness? Personal holiness, I guess we could say. The king's people are a blessed people. Not because they're perfect, but because they know, they have the assurance that their disordered desires are being conquered. And we battle sin. Do you battle sin? Is it just me? There were two people in the first service. I was hoping for better in this one. 
Do you battle? Of course you do. But listen, as a child of God, you battle sin from the high ground of Jesus' victory over sin for you. You're on the victory side, not the losing side. Don't ever think that. But be sure of this. A faith that is not changing you is a faith that is not saving you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Matthew, says this about justification and sanctification, or using today's terms, positional righteousness and practical righteousness. He says, the two are inseparable. Though it is impossible for good works to justify anybody, it is just as impossible for a justified person to live without doing good works. The term righteousness as used by Christ is therefore very comprehensive, embracing both the forensic and the ethical. In other words, my position before God, but my living in God's world is being made more and more righteous. What's the point? The point is simply this. The happiest life God has for his people is the life of faith and obedience to his will. That's the happiest life God has for us. And, and what did Lloyd-Jones say? He says, hey, this is, this is the Bible's big story from cover to cover. Well, think about this. Moses remembered this promised blessedness to God's people as he was reminding them of the exodus and the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 5, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. It has always been God's best for his people to experience his best, living by trusting in him and walking in his ways. This is countercultural, isn't it? This is utterly different, not only from the way the rest of the world, apart from Christ, lives. But listen, it's also very different from cultural Christianity that says that Christianity for you is three holidays a year, and you go on living as, as, a, as a wretched sinner like you always have, but you've got your get-out-of-hell-free card, and you're good to go. Well, that's not even the mindset of a redeemed person. Someone indwelt by the Spirit of God, given the new birth to trust wholly upon Christ. And the Lord loves his children enough, doesn't he? So that when we go taste something else, what's the scriptures? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, we want to taste something else. And he'll let you experience the deadness of that, won't he? He'll let you experience the insufficiency of that. Just that, that's what, that was the deal with the prodigal son, wasn't it? Went out and tried this and that and the other thing, sowed his wild oats, sowed other people's wild oats, as it turns out. Until what? He came to an end of himself and realized, you know what? The life dad had for me was the best life I can have. I think I'll go to that. This aspect of being 
filled, being satisfied with the righteousness of God in practice is a glad expectation that his people have always had. There is a day coming when I will be like Jesus. Listen to this Psalm of David. This is the Psalm that we read this morning before we started singing. Psalm 17, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Wow. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. David, the best king Israel had ever had. David, the king who was also a man after God's own. David, the mixed bag. <laughs> Lived, are you a mixed bag? David lived in the hope that he would be made righteous as God is righteousness, is righteous. John the Apostle echoes this wonderful promise of God for his people. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How similar is that to Psalm 17? And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here is a beatitude. Remember Matthew 5? Here's a beatitude that says, hey, are you you hungry for righteousness? Not positional righteousness. Are, are Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? To be done with the life that is the nature of those who are apart from God and pursue his righteousness. Because he's promised to make you like Jesus. He who began the good work in you will complete it. Now I mentioned one other aspect of righteousness, remember? I said I needed another word that started with P. And you all laughed and I said, okay, public righteousness, what is that? It's to do with society. It's to do with the world around us. God's people really are grieved that things are wrong in the world by God's measure. God's people want his name to be honored. God's people want his name to be vindicated, if you will. We want God's ways to be lived out in the community of people who are made in his image. Let me give you a quick example of that. So we applaud, do we not, things like our state Supreme Court upholding Idaho's ban on most forms of abortion. Why? Because it's a political thing? Our side is getting its way. It's nothing to do with that. This is to do with the righteousness of God. That's meant to be lived out among people made in the image of God. We value life because God gives life. So no, it is not okay that our kids are schooled in the ignorance of man's best guesses to how everything got to be. The mountains and the trees and the water and all, it just sort of made itself. That's really quite amazing. How does that? Well, you, you need a lot of time, you understand. It takes a lot of time. You have to go way back to before people kept track of stuff, that's for sure. 
It's not commendable today for a man to say he's a woman and then to go get a surgery and pretend he is. Or vice versa. That stuff should bother us. Why? Because we belong to this party and not the other. No, because we're children of God. Because we belong to the kingdom of heaven. And we want to see God's best spreading throughout humanity. This is the power of the gospel. This is why the gospel is essential, more essential than which party you vote. More essential with whether you rally for this thing or rally for that other thing. Because the kingdom grows. Are you hearing this? The kingdom grows one heart at a time, surrendered to the lordship of our king. A day is coming when this kingdom of righteousness will have come in its fullness. Do you ever think about that? That there really is a day coming when righteousness will prevail on the earth? Listen to Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is a done deal in God's economy. This is a certainty. And God's people, listen, are meant to live in the direction of this kingdom in its fullness. God's people are a hopeful people. God's people are a gospel-proclaiming people because it really is the answer. Jesus really is the sufficiency for all that is wrong with humanity. Isaiah 32, 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Wow. Revelation 7 We'll end with this. Revelation 7 gives us a glorious picture of this. John the Apostle looks into the future and he sees the king's blessed people enjoying their inheritance. He says they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What blessedness is this? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. A Christian is made right with God. But be sure of this, she's also made right by God. She's made more righteous and lives toward an eternal kingdom of righteousness. It's all through the work of our King, our Jesus. Are you satisfied in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful reminder of who we are. And Lord, what you have done to make it so. Lord, I pray if there 
are any among us who are outside your kingdom. Jesus, that you would draw such hearts to yourself. Lord, that your kingdom would grow among us in this place. And Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts from any complacency, any apathy, Lord, that we would live as those who more and more hunger for righteousness in our daily living, the way we think, the way we relate to other people for your namesake, that this would be our influence in our community for your glory. And Lord, help us to live hopefully in the direction of this certain day when all sin will have been vanquished, where righteousness reigns. We pray this.